you're familiar with this creature as exceedingly persuasive, you can still find those episodes with the lovely Brooke Rogers, who you know and love, here under season one. I'm going to keep the party going here as a legal matter. Do credit to the Who for that name. This is now going to be populated with some of my episodes, like this one, which is the third part on First Amendment free speech. But I'm also going to try to add in audio from shows and video discussions with other folks as new episodes on here. For example, did a couple chats recently with the lovely Lila Mensing on weed laws. You can check out her show, High Crime. And we have a few installments of a new show with Jackie Zabrowski and Natalie Jean that we have been doing on twitch.tv slash oh no it's Jackie. But I'm going to see if I can make future video episodes listenable here too. I'm going to get my big girl tech panties on. Anyways, if you found this confusing or want to do everything in one place, you can also watch stuff and listen to stuff on my new website, which is mkzjoybrennan.com. Now, let's throw it over to me. So hopping back on the First Amendment horse, so to speak, the long overdue where we are now with social media and the First Amendment, but since we are still, I think, technically in what the youngins like to call spooky season, uh, proximate to Halloween, I guess you can call it Scorpio season. And as a Scorpio, I should like that, but I do think that horoscopes get too much weight given to them, so that's a story for another day. Whatever you like to call it. We're still in the midst of this spooky climb, so I thought that we could maybe pair this last piece about the First Amendment and difficulties handling new media with a semi-topical spooky story of the War of the Worlds radio broadcast, which back in the, I believe, the late 30s, I'll, we'll get there, presented another more lighthearted, more fleeting, less loaded problem with how to navigate this newfangled media and this bizarre problem presented by it under the strictures of the First Amendment. And then from there, we'll get into the much more serious, less anecdotal <laughs> issue of um, social media and the First Amendment, you know, the internet and the First Amendment and the problems that that presents. Because um, there are some parallels, even though the War of the Worlds broadcast um, really was, was a one-off such as it was. And I don't mean to use this kind of funny, kind of bizarre, quaint now story to make light of or create some like soothing portend for the risks of, of internet speech. Um, but, you know, it's a fun story. It's one that I've always loved. Um, my dad read the book to me, the H.G. Wells book to me back in my early years. And I guess his his family actually lived through the broadcast in New Jersey. They lived in New Jersey at the time, which was where the supposed alien invasion was set. Well, we'll, we'll get into the details of the story, but I do want to say up top that both of these 
threads. The radio issues and the FCC trying to navigate the backlash of or the world's radio broadcast and the current issues that we're still having still have yet to even set a precedent regarding the First Amendment on the internet, social media, things like threatening speech, dangerous speech, misinformation. Um, There's a similarity because there's the societal value and the need and the legal priority to prevent and control unchecked harm, Um, unvetted content, dangerous, instigating stuff, um, false or misleading presentations of information, um, no inherent fact-checking, which is true to both stories, or balancing disclaimer requirements, things like that come up in in both stories. Stories. Both examples, I guess. Uh, But trying to balance that considerable concern and what can become a very slippery slope, as we're seeing now with society ruled in large part by this misinformation, Um, balancing that with carefully tailored enough legislation that doesn't tread excessively on the First Amendment because so much of legislation is like responding to harm, but ideally we could prevent harm because a lot of damage is done once it's done. So, um, also, if you want to get more into the First Amendment and the bounds of those strictures, you got plenty of meat. I did, I think, three prior parts on the First Amendment. You can go back either in the podcast feed or the YouTube feed, whichever medium you're listening on now, if you're interested in in getting into more of the constitutional basics and and the meat of that. So let's get to the Orson Welles piece, the radio broadcast of War of the Worlds. So this is a Wells on Wells presentation. Um, The War of the Worlds story was written by H.G. Wells, and then the radio broadcast was planned by the then wunderkind of radio and stage, he hadn't really made the leap to film yet, but he would, uh, Orson Welles, which is spelled differently than the Welles in HG. He was doing very well on the radio at the time. He, He played a number of characters, some of whom were known to be him, some were not. He played a very famous radio personality called The Shadow, which, um, You know, this is before TV was a thing in households. Um, This is in 1938. So radio was, as I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with, like, those heartwarming photos and stories. It's like, it's Christmas story era with the families gathered around these quote-unquote primetime radio shows just listening to, um, to entertainment. So... And this is a characteristic to mark because it does it presents a lot of problems in a lot of different media when that medium is the way of getting both information and entertainment. Um, and we see this with social media in huge part. I would argue that like given the way that social media and internet are presented, Things like social media especially should not be the means of of getting information necessarily because it's so prone to being um, 
unvetted or misconstrued or with things like Twitter made too short to be accurate because by nature of character limits, it, it cuts out a lot of info. But be that as it may, it is a means of getting both entertainment and information for a lot of people, myself included. So I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth. Um, but for the radio in the time of this broadcast, it was recently, like in, in recent past, in recent memory for a lot of these listeners, um, it was also the way that they had gotten a lot of really alarming information. And news bulletins were the the main conveyance of that. So for the, the London Blitzkrieg, um, so the bombing of London by the Nazis, and this is before our entry into World War II, but like things are happening over there in Europe, and we're certainly aware of and, and kind of helping out the Allies over there already. So we're made aware of things going on there, so the news of the bombing came in as a news bulletin, and it cuts in, you know, much like TV bulletins cut in now. It's like breaking news alert, um, there's a huge danger, and then if you're in London listening, you should take shelter, uh, you know, these emergency instructions, very scary stuff. Um, but that was, you know, the radio and these bulletins were the means of getting that information. Um, and then another one that was native to New Jersey specifically, which again is where the War of the Worlds was set, but then it was broadcast out nationwide. But the Hindenburg was uh, one of the earliest, you know, well covered by recorded media disasters that everybody heard about. And it came in because it was, it was so well covered that this Zeppelin was coming to land here as a celebrated event. And so everybody's already you know, listening or watching or ready to uh, report on it, and then this thing goes horribly wrong, and there's this famous sound clip of a reporter saying, oh, the humanity, um, and that was also presented via news bulletin. So another example of people being familiar with when tragedy strikes, when emergencies happen, you hear the newscaster break in, maybe to an entertainment program, maybe at a weird hour, and report the scary shit. Um, so this is not only a relatively new occurrence, but a very familiar one in terms of a method of getting breaking news. So on Halloween Eve, which maybe that makes a difference that it's Halloween Eve, not Halloween, in terms of what you're expecting. I don't know. Halloween Eve 1938, uh, Orson Welles and his Mercury Theater team, which is connected to what's now CBS, decide to do, they write this enactment of the story of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, which involves Martians landing on Earth and taking over or attempting to take over and killing a lot of people and, you know, wreaking havoc and rampant destruction everywhere. Um, but they, they script it as if it is a news bulletin. So it starts out with, like, here is the orchestra. And now, Raymond Rakello and his orchestra. So they have this nice orchestra, and then they cut in the first time. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. 
At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. And they do that a couple times. And they, they have actors, you know, trained radio voice actors playing out the roles of the newscaster, the witnesses. They have, as the story goes on and the destruction spreads, they have police chiefs, they have other reporters being like, I, I can't believe what I'm seeing. Much like the Hindenburg guy saying like, oh my God, oh, the humanity, you know, his own humanity breaking through the composure and the professionalism of the situation. So it's very believable in short, and it's written to be parody and like a, a scary story. But there's also only one disclaimer. Well, eventually at the end, I think they, they have to break in and do another once a lot of this havoc is wrought and people get very alarmed. Um, although there's some dispute about the scale of that. But for the majority of the program, the only disclaimer is before it starts. Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in The War of the World by H.G. Wells. So it, it reminds me of, you know, uh, pharmaceutical ads where they have the whole commercial and then at the end it's like, oh, by the way, it could kill you and we're going to say this really quickly and it's small print, goodbye. So it's, it's really not designed... Because the whole point is that it's supposed to seem real and that it suspends reality and it puts you into this world, even if you know that it's fake, that, you know, you're transported to this story, because that's what makes it fun. That's why it's good. But if you were somebody who was deceived by the program, the point is that there were not repeated reminders like, hey, are you getting too into this? Or did you come in halfway? and not realize, um, just in case you're freaking out, you know, hold on to your hats and stay in the house. It's, this is fake, it's for Halloween. Which I can imagine as an entertainer would have been a real burden to do that. I mean, like why even bother trying to make it realistic? It, it, I don't know, it's like if you're at the Phantom of the Opera and the, sh the chandelier comes crashing down and it's like, okay, wait, we're gonna stop right now. You know that it's not actually falling, right? So there, I mean, it's a spectrum. It's like a sliding scale, right? But there is a limit where that that overburdens the art. But the flip side um, is that without some sort of happy medium, there there is the risk that a larger number of people won't have a reasonable disclaimer um, and. The big problem here, such as it was, is that apparently there was like a timing, scheduling, programming issue that made it such that a lot of people who were listening did not hear the beginning of the program. So <laughs> this is kind of funny. So this is according to CBS and AIPO investigations after into, you know, what went wrong here and, and what happened. So 40 to 50 percent of listeners to the War of the Worlds broadcast tuned in late, so after that beginning disclaimer. And the reason for this is that listeners who were tuning in late tuned in after the first half, the first act of a show called the Charlie McCarthy Hour, which was the most popular show um, of the week. And it was a ventriloquist show, 
I guess. And so, like, why this ventriloquist show was the most popular at all for anybody on any platform baffles me. But why, especially on a radio show, when the whole novelty is visual and the act is visual, I, I don't know. But apparently it was doing it for audiences at the time. So a lot of people were listening to that first, which cut into the beginning of War of the Worlds, and then they turn the dial over once Charlie McCarthy and his little friend are over. Or I don't know if Charlie's the friend or the... <laughs> I hate dummy acts. Um, but so, <laughs> point being, a lot of people, by nature of the radio scheduling, and this, I don't know that it was intentional. I mean, Wells was a pretty good strategizer, but I could also see it being just like, oh, rats, I guess hindsight's twenty twenty. Um that most people, you know, you're surfing the dial after that and you hear something that sounds like news, it's a little bit different than if you know like we do now that like, oh the T V guide says that this is on at this time, or you see it from the beginning, whatever. So that's a bit of a problem. I mean it's there are disputed accounts and there aren't great figures, um on how many people actually thought this was real. I think the lore is that, um, hi, Jingly Cat. The, I know, she, she was convinced. But so the lore that I think most of us who are familiar with this story have heard is that, you know, it was pandemonium, that nationwide everybody was fooled, everybody heard the broadcast, they believed it, they were in the streets. They got in their cars, they called their neighbors and family members, they, you know, fled, whatever. Um, there is some evidence that that did happen, especially in, like, the tri-state area, because the story reported that it was in New Jersey, so um, if you believe that, then you're closer to the epicenter if you're in New York or Connecticut or New Jersey. Um, there was some concrete evidence that there were traffic jams in those areas, that police communications were blocked up because there were hundreds of calls. Things like that really are documented. But beyond that, um, all we really have to go on are letters to either the New York Times, the FCC, so the Federal Communications Commission, the theater itself, um, or police. And if you actually look at those, it's the letters to that weren't to the FCC or police, so the letters to entertainment or news outlets were majority positive. It was like 60-40-ish positive. So again, this is just the ones who were driven to complain or to compliment. So it doesn't really account for how many heard it, but it does suggest that maybe there were fewer um, actually fooled by this than like to say. And you know, you can parallel it to things like 9-11, that it's such a touchstone event, and the more you hear about it, there becomes this, like, collective national memory that isn't necessarily untrue or consciously dishonest or anything, but people like to say they have a part of the story. So if you ask people afterwards, did you hear this? Did you believe it? more folks are likely to say yes than might actually account for it. But um, there's no dispute that some people believed it, and some people were very upset by this. Um, and this will bring us to what I guess is, is kind of a parallel between this 
cute anecdotal one-off event with uh, the radio and one very convincing parody and a sustained new problem that we have yet to solve of social media, internet, and the First Amendment. So the FCC had been recently created, and that is the body that we still use. The Communications Act of 1934, so this is only like four years before this broadcast, had created the FCC. So it's a relatively new entity. Uh, it's dealing with a new medium of communication. And there was something in the legislation that created it that expressly said no censoring art. Uh, like, don't be targeting specific artists, don't target programs. So they were very aware in that time of you know, we're applying these old, very important standards of the First Amendment uh, and the balances that we make under the First Amendment that I talked about in, in prior episodes, like balancing harm and value of the speech, etc., etc. We're applying these to a very new situation and a very varied art form that we cannot possibly imagine or enumerate all the circumstances that are going to come up. So in creating what can be you know, a, a very new burden on speech by, you know, creating this whole act and entity for the purpose of regulating it, we have to put in very strict safeguards, at least from the beginning. And so there was this provision that, like, don't read this to censor, to be allowed to censor any targeted sort of program. So <laughs> that's a bit of a problem because... Other than either, you, you kind of have two options for the FCC dealing with Orson Welles. You can look into punishing him and the theater and any entities under that umbrella. You can look into punishing him under some existing legislation. Or you can look to, and or, you could do both potentially, uh, to creating some sort of legislation or regulation that prevents this kind of thing from happening in the future. There were no standards to do the former. There was nothing that they could say Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater and CBS violated. Which, like, yeah, of course. What, they, they acted too well, essentially? They fooled everyone? They had very convincing art. It just happens to be that this art and this medium of conveying art is also the means of real news bulletins. Um, so, shoot. <laughs> like... It kind of defeats the purpose if you don't require them to do the convincing parody. So the first option of punishing him under existing law is kind of off the table. So then you're presented with creating something new to prevent this from happening again, but within the strictures of this FCC asterisk that says no censoring or targeting programs. And with or without that, what really could you do? Um, I guess one thing that would work is, is to say, like, if you do another news bulletin mimicry program, which by very nature of this happening is less likely to fool people in, in future, right? Because now we know that, you know, look, take it with a grain of salt, question, you know, don't suspend disbelief so quickly, whatever. Um, but... People already know now that this is an option. How frequently is this this method used? Um, 
you could require like disclaimers every 15 minutes. Hey, don't scratch the couch. Like at set intervals, something like that. Um, but then you do get into the balancing artist and freedom of speech expression with this burden because it, it does become very burdensome and takes away from the artistic value. If you're breaking in every 15 minutes to do what we said before, be like, hey, by the way, in case you forgot or in case you're tuning in late, this is not real. So um, not to taint the art, but to taint the art. That kind of sucks. Ultimately, um, they didn't do anything. The FCC had difficulty forming a correct response. They, they took everybody's criticism very seriously and did like a public investigation. The Mercury Theater and Orson Welles gave a, a very good, very sincere apology. Orson Welles, um, you know, totally lying, <laughs> really was like, I had no idea people would take this seriously. I am so shocked. I'm so sorry. But like, apparently he was delighted in secret, which why not? Um, there was some backlash, uh, which I shouldn't sympathize with as a person who tries to be compassionate, but a lot of people are like, you had to be so fucking dumb to believe this. And I do think that a little bit. Um, like, maybe call a friend, maybe look out in the street, maybe check any other station. Um, check the radio programming for what was supposed to be on that. Anyways, um, we're not judging, but there was kind of that anti-listener sentiment for folks who believed it. Um, but ultimately, the FCC's investigation, um, especially in light of the theater saying that they would never do anything like that again, they're like, we definitely will not use news bulletins as means of entertainment again. So this particular entity is not going to do it again. The novelty is taken out of it, you know, wins out of the sales. We kind of left it there. And... The problem didn't come up again. I think there was one lawsuit that eventually was dismissed. Uh, I was not able to find the specifics on the nature of that, but it was about some person who was upset and believed it. Um, apparently, in South America, um, I want to say Ecuador, I, I forget which country specifically, but within 20 years, tried it again. Like, did the whole same thing. They obviously translated, did their own broadcast of the story with their own, uh, like, radio station personnel. And same result, but worse. And that one actually resulted in a number of deaths. There, there were some stories about, like, people having heart attacks with our Orson Welles broadcast. But those were never substantiated. And I'd go further than not substantiated because people looked into them and did not find anything. So uh, maybe, maybe it happened. But in this one, there was actually like a huge fire in the bill in the radio building because people were so upset. Um, like the National Guard was deployed. People died in the radio building fire. Some of the radio personnel had to like jump off the roof to escape. Just so really terrible. Um, obviously a different country with different speech protections, so it's hard to parallel uh, anything about that happening or, or any subsequent response, but like, yowza. Um, the risk was there, I guess. Um, but that said, nothing has really happened 
of that scale here with one false story. Now, what does rival it, I, I would argue, is, you know, any instance, but particularly now we're doing a, a very distinctly bang-up job right now, scale-wise, of um, mass belief in false stories uh, driven by unvetted information conveyed by a new medium that the First Amendment has yet to adapt to and that becomes a means of conveying both entertainment and information and maybe not doing a great job of distinguishing between the two. Um, so, I mean, the internet is, is tough, right, and social media specifically, because the reach of a social media site is so, so high than the reach of a brochure from a crackpot on the subway, or even somebody on one of those, like, shock jock radio shows now, and this is the difference between the two platforms, because you have to go looking for things like that, or you have to be in this totally random small number of people who actually end up in the right place at the right time on this subway platform to even receive the information. And in things like that, there's, there's something about the context in which you're receiving it that informs the content. Um, if you're listening to Alex Jones, for example, like, you are already there, you're, something else drove you to conspiracy world to begin with, and you thus sought out, and it, it's kind of going in the other direction. It's like you, you feel this way, and something made you feel this way, and so you are seeking this, this means of expression out, versus you're just existing, and then you hear it, and you take it as gospel, which is what social media has become. And unlike other forms of journalism and information purveying, there's no fact-checking. There's nobody in this moderator role, which even people like Alex Jones have. Um, I mean, news organizations have editors. They select their stories. They require research. They... Um, require funding, but all you need to get something on social media is saying it. And oftentimes it helps if you have a following to begin with, but you, A, you can get those for any number of reasons, and few of those have anything to do with qualifications. Um, if they do, it's almost accidental. And B, you don't even have to have that for information to get out there. In fact, they've done a fair amount of studies in a similar vein that show that algorithms love anger and they love like angry reacts and comments that tend to denote um, very controversial or false information, probably because the nature of false information is that it's so extreme because it doesn't have to be true. I mean, who makes up a semi-neutral nuanced story? You make up absurd things because you can get away. If you're making it up, you can get away with it. You don't have, you know, the bindings of nuance or like, okay, yeah, I said this, but the person who told me this um, has alliances with this company, and so you got to take that with a grain of salt. Also, there was some pre-existing health condition, and it, there's some research about the effect of that, but ultimately, not black and white. 
you don't get that. extremism and fake news don't work that way because they don't have to. So algorithms are built to favor false things, frankly. And on top of that, you have the influence of money and advertising. And so on YouTube, for example, um, the anti-vax lobby spends millions and millions of dollars so that their videos and videos with their tags and affiliated with them come up earlier in the queue. So it's, it's fewer clicks and fewer watches to get to this false information than to get to any other type of information, including the right stuff. So there are forces that are actively favoring the bad stuff and whether that means fake or angry and inflammatory, whatever, they do very well. And so you have two forces. You have no fact checking on anything. So no positive things, um, no editors, no um, vetting by things like hiring or recommendations or employment um, or like journalism training or research or whatever. And you actively have factors that boost the bad stuff, the misinformed stuff, the divisive stories, whatever. Um, and it, it also, the third problem that you have here is that the fact of this new medium itself puts social media sites for the first time in a moderator role. So in things like the Orson Welles broadcast on radio, the Mercury Theater, CBS, they knew they were the moderator of the content. Um, they're liable if Orson Welles does something bad or, or if they put on something that is written in a dangerous way. They are one entity. They have been part of this. They funded this. They hired Orson Welles. You know, they did this vetting process and thus they are held responsible if something goes wrong. Um, and they're also, you know, by nature of being you know, electing to be the entity that, that hires and is the platform, they are somewhat trained and equipped to be the moderator. But social media sites like Twitter and Facebook are kind of put in that role, but they're not really, because they're not hiring the people who use it. They're not training them. They, in fact, with the way that um, jurisprudence has gone, under the Communications Decency Act, Section 230, which you might have heard about with all these weird Trump lawsuits recently, which claim essentially that Facebook is the government, which is the only reason, but it's another story. But um, the, the websites themselves are not editors. They're not publications. They're not anything akin to that. They're not radio stations. They're not TV stations. They're just kind of creating this context and then stepping away. Um, they're creating like a public square for the purpose of a lot of things. One of those things is speech and interaction. And yet our jurisprudence under Section 230 is that they're not liable for the content that people post. And that came out of this case that is such a harbinger of the, or a marker of the 90s, um, called Zarin versus AOL. And it was after the Oklahoma City bombing. 
I don't think we ever found out who's doing this, but it, it's so bizarre. Um, somebody was posting tasteless merchandise ads about the bombing, um, saying like, I can't remember any examples, but basically like mocking the victims and saying like you can buy shirts with these slogans on them and call this random guy, Zarin, and here's his AOL email address and all his information. Um, just a random person. I don't know if he was being targeted or what, but he was then getting harassed for marketing, for what looked like him marketing this really tasteless, terrible stuff. But he didn't do that. And so he then sued AOL as the platform that was hosting all this was making him get harassed. And ultimately, the ruling was that AOL was not liable for content that random people posted um, anonymously. And as somebody who has seen a couple of these cases, it's really, really hard to figure out who is posting under an anonymous account. It's very, very difficult to get enough to subpoena a website. And even if you do, even if you have enough to get to that point, let alone the fact that this requires, you know, a lot of time and electing to take this route and legal fees, whatever, but even if you get there, all that Twitter or AOL or Facebook or any of these places can give you is like they made an email and it was under this name. We don't have their social. We don't have their address. Uh, you know, they can put a phone number down. Who knows if it's real? Who knows if the name is real? Uh, we can give you their email, but anybody can make an email. So it's really, really hard to trace people. So there's really no way and nobody to hold responsible. Um, the fact that this Zarin case is super 90s is also a marker of, of where social media has was and where it is now. And so there has been a bit of a shift recently because we're not just talking dial-up internet anymore. And that's, I think, you know, we need to reassess the risk and even if it changes the internet landscape a little bit to have better protections, um, maybe it would be worth it for websites to carry a little bit more liability for things like stuff that would have indicated the January 6th attacks were happening or vaccine misinformation. You know, they, they're doing what they can, but that clearly is not working. Like maybe it's not all they can. And so in terms of the technological ways to do that, I'm not entirely sure. I do think that requiring more identity information to get an account would make sense um, because it does allow there to be some way to track people if you want to defer liability after, but to put that onus on the site would work. Um, I think that stronger content moderations and strengthening those algorithms and really putting some dedication into that and maybe, again, expanding liability to websites as an impetus to, to really make that happen might be worthwhile. Um, I've heard some stories about like the people who do the fact-checking and the disputed whatever for social media sites, like who go through the contested reported content, and apparently those conditions are just hellish. You know, it's minimum, minimum wage, big room, just full of flicking through violent or sexual or upsetting content. So because of the weight we now know is put on those types of processes, maybe making working conditions for folks who are doing that and also raising standards for what they're using, that might be a place to put um, 
attention to and to put that attention on them by doing legislation saying, you know, this is a huge, essentially editorial power that they're wielding under the First Amendment and our democracy, we now know, and our health is at stake if they do it wrong. So you must pay them this amount, you must use this set of standards, things like that. So I always try to give some basic uh, positive, not necessarily good positive, but like active positive options rather than just illustrating why we're fucked. So those are some things that come to mind that would not be huge transgressions into the First Amendment, but might help. Um, I will add here that there is a deserved footnote about, you know, with all this stuff about advertising money, corporate speech, political speech, um, President Reagan deserves dishonorable mention here because I do think that he paved the way for this mess by getting rid of the fairness doctrine, which was something, you know, an FCC-related standard that required media to cover controversial public interest matters and political issues and provide airtime to contrasting views in a balanced way. And it kind of acted on a ch as like a check and balance on money influence in news and politics and misinformation and platforms. Whereas now that we don't have that, um, even developed platforms like TV media and Fox News and things like that don't have the balance that they used to. And you can live your whole life truly without seeing the other side or the facts in some cases on a certain issue. And Citizens United, you know, you see how all these issues are intermeshed because Citizens United is the money politics side of that, that now that we have greater allowances for secrecy and corporate money in the influence of politics, it's really not freedom of speech or freedom to influence campaigns or to speak your mind anymore because you're not free to access everything if it's so unbalanced and you don't know that it's imbalanced and you don't have access thus to things that would balance it. Like freedom to say something shouldn't mean freedom to make it such that nobody hears opposing views. And that's what money and corporate influence have been allowed to do with, especially with private platforms in social media and Post-Trump, that's where a lot of politics and news have moved in like a way that is endorsed by the highest office in arguably the world. So anyways, Where the Worlds was cute though. Um, it's fun. You can listen to it on Spotify, which is really fun. Um, I It's a Halloween ritual that I've done a couple times and it, it really, it's, it's cool and exciting. And even though I empathize with the the somewhat scorn for people who believed it. I like to try to make myself get whipped up into it's crazy. What if it happened? Whoa. I don't know. All right. Well, maybe all is not lost. Maybe it is. Um, happy Scorpio season, even though astrology means nothing. Love your favorite Scorpio. And don't say I'm such a Scorpio for saying that. But also I love you. All right. Over and out, Martians. Woo!